So Job 27, looking at the entire chapter, God's holy and inspired word from Job chapter 27, your attention to the reading of it, God's word, Job 27. And Job again took up his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my right and the almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it for me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what hope? For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is is with the Almighty I will not conceal? Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moss, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood in the night. A whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. As far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So at what point do you cross the line? That is, there is a time to push and a time when you push too hard. Indeed, this is one of those gray areas of life, and it's the stuff of wisdom. For example, with a joke, you can push the envelope envelope for bigger laughs, but you can also cross the line into being offensive or inappropriate, which isn't very funny. In sports, there's a time for a Hail Mary, but it may get intercepted. Love is about affection and attention, but too much can be smothering. All investment has some sort of risk, but too much and you lose it all. And minding the line is especially a factor in a debate. For a good argument proves only what it can and not too much. Respectful disputation sticks to the ideas and doesn't attack the other person. Well, Job and his three amigos have been wrangling with words for a good while now, and the friends have stepped over the line long ago with their personal insults and outright fabrications against Job. 
Job, though, has demonstrated more self-control and integrity by not pushing too far. Oh, he's stepped up to the line, but he hasn't crossed it quite yet. And yet, as Job now gives his long closing statement, we start to get the uneasy feeling that he's putting his foot out of bounds. So the debate is over. The numerous words after, or numerous rounds with many words, the friends have now gone silent, and we will not hear from them again. Job has bested them speechless, which is a good sign that he's come out on top. And yet where the trio have run out of things to say, Job's bank account is still loaded with words. Therefore, he launches into a long monologue, which extends from here all the way through chapter 31. And this expansive oration has the feeling of a closing argument. All the witnesses have been heard, the prosecution has rested its case, and so the defendant gets the last word. Indeed, as we shall see, the background setting here is that of a courtroom. And this starts to come out by Job opening with an oath. He swears by the life of God, and this oath covers from goes from verse 2 through verse 6, and it entails several sworn assertions. First, though, he swears that God has removed his court case. God has deprived Job of his right to a trial. Now, this has been a long-time need for Job. Ever since chapter 9, Job has been repeatedly asking for a trial with God. He yearned to stand before the Lord and for God to vindicate Job's righteousness. In this way, it could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Job suffered for nothing, that the friends were wrong, and that Job was upright. But the Lord has denied Job's plea for a hearing up to this point. Now, this is not a charge that God is unjust in some fundamental way, but it does state that God has refused to open his court for Job. The Almighty is not unjust, but he has denied the petition of Job for a trial. Now, these are close, but they're not the same. Yet with the court of heaven shuttered, Job now swears an an oath, an oath of innocence. He says as long as he lives, as long as he has the breath of life going through his nose, he will not speak falsehood. No deceit will be upon his tongue. Job will never let go of his integrity. He has an iron grip on his righteousness, and you will have to pry it from his dead, cold hands. Indeed, he invokes the name of God to certify that he is righteous and that he will never compromise his uprightness, not even with a single deceptive syllable. Now, in the Old Testament and within the ancient world in general, there is no stronger or more serious way to say anything. That is, an oath is a promise that you cannot take back without dire consequences. Though in addition to affirming his integrity, Job also swears that he will not declare his friends to be in the right. The you of verse 5 is plural, pointing to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Thus he says, I will never pronounce you guys right. This is quite emphatic. By an oath, Job is upright, he will never speak a lie, and he will never agree with his friends. They're at an impasse, 
There's no meeting in the middle, and compromise is not in the cards. Yet why all this dogmatic assertion with an oath? Well, such an oath indicates a courtroom setting. God may not have given Job a trial, but this doesn't stop the four friends from having one of their own. Indeed, Job's oath shows that the debate with the friends has morphed into a sort of court case. The three friends, as you'll remember, started out with the stated goal to comfort Job. It was a counseling session. But then they shifted to try and explain his suffering, and then they encouraged Job to repent so that he could be restored. And then finally, they ended up charging Job with grave grave felonies. Back in chapter 22, Eliphaz, as you'll remember, reamed Job out for oppressing the widow and the orphan and denying God as if he was godless. And in the ancient world, such accusations are by definition legally binding charges. To charge Job with crimes, the friends have become the prosecutors, the witnesses to condemn Job for punishment, and it makes Job the defendant in order to argue for his acquittal. Likewise, within ancient legal proceedings, oaths oaths played the essential role, particularly in an absence of definitive proof. Oaths were crucial in a he-said, she-shed predicament. That is, the friends charged, Job is a wicked felon. Job rebuts, no, I am righteous. Well, who's right? Well, there isn't sufficient evidence to determine, so in steps the oath. The defendant could swear an oath of innocence, as Job does here, and this would bump the trial up to the higher court of God. The Lord would hear the oath to adjudicate it, to curse the defendant if he was lying, or to acquit him if he was not. Therefore, this oath, in a sense, forces God to go to trial. As the defender of justice and the guarantor of the oath, taken in his holy name, the Lord has to adjudicate the oath. He must either judge or acquit the oath taker. This oath compels God, then, to hold a court for Job despite the Lord's refusal to do so up to this point. It is a legal appeal to a higher court, the court of heaven, that can't be denied. This shows how desperate Job is for a hearing. He's asked and he's pleaded God for one for chapters now. And yet after God's long silence of refusal, Job swears a solemn oath of his righteousness. Surely now the Lord has to call his court into session. Furthermore, though, we get an uneasy feeling here at a possible implication Job says God has refused him a trial, and he swore that his righteousness is undying. Now, this being the case, if God doesn't vindicate Job, then it raises the question, is something wrong with God? Job here opens the door for implicating God. Job is stressing his immovable righteousness at the expense of the Lord. If I am right, and if I swear to it, and if God doesn't vindicate me, then the problem may lie with God. Job's suffering is no longer just a hard mystery, 
but it's become an insinuation of impropriety. Job's boldness here is starting to poke where it's not wise to poke. Upon instant replay, the toe of Job has slipped over the line. Next, though, Job continues to defend his innocence in verses 6 and 7. Now, these verses are a bit obscure and challenging, and yet the second part of verse 6 is better read as, My heart has not reproached for any of my days. That is, this is not about self-reproaching, but it's about reproaching others. Thus, verse 7 is the reproach that he has not spoken. Let my enemy be as the wicked. Now, this is actually a curse, and the enemy here refers to your opponents in court, i.e. the friends. The point is, Job swears that he's not cursed his friends as his opponents. This refers to the fact that if you accuse someone, if you are a witness in court in the ancient world, you too were liable. If the charge proved false, then you were punished in kind. That is, you accused the guy of murder to get him executed. You were shown to be a liar, and so you were put to death. False witnesses were punished with the same penalty that they sought for the defendant. Well, the friends have been charging Job ad nauseum for being wicked. And yet Job has not retaliated by cursing them. Now, sure, he's called them worthless counselors. He's warned them of the punishment for false charges. But Job has not cursed them. Remember, at the heart of Job's test was whether he would curse God. Well, Job asserts that he has not cursed his opponents, human or divine. And Job gives the reason for why he has not said such to his friends. He goes on, he says, For the impious don't have hope. The godless don't delight in the Almighty. They don't pray to him at all times. The impious have no time for God in life. They just ignore him. Thus, when distress does come upon the impious, they cry out to God, and he will not hear them. Now, it might seem harsh to refer to the three friends as godless or better impious here, but in all their words from the beginning of this book, the friends have not called upon God this whole time. Now, Job has regularly addressed God. Job prayed to the Lord that he might help him again and again. But the friends haven't said a single word to God. They talked about God, but not to him. And if the friends don't pray, then the impious slipper fits. Hence, Job doesn't need to reproach them with curses, for their impiety will be its own reward. Job here is not being overly mean-spirited with the friends as they have been towards him. Therefore, as he goes on, he says, instead of cursing them, he says he will teach them. Let me teach you concerning the hand of God. Job will be their instructor in the ways of the Lord. He will school them, and he will not conceal the purposes of the Almighty. For the friends need an unvarnished lesson on the ways of the Lord. It can't be sugar-coated or censored or G-rated. They need the full story about God 
and so Job will give it to them. And this is actually something that we all need from time to time. For we are prone to cast God in our own image. We color the Lord in the hues that we like. We'll domesticate God according to our preferences, and we ignore or suppress the uncomfortable truths about God. That is, we will say the Lord is love, thus he's never wrathful. Or Jesus is just our buddy, but he isn't holy and fearful. Well, so also the friends have spoken of God only in terms of their simplistic retribution principle. They've said the Almighty only rewards the upright and he always judges the sinful. Neat and tidy, no more to say. Job, though, counters and says, no, the full story of God is much more mysterious and messy. Even points out that the friends know it to be so, but they suppress it. Verse 12, he says, you've seen it all yourselves. That is, the friends have witnessed what Job is talking about, though they won't admit it. Indeed, they've seen what Job is as his point, but they still breathe out vanity. He says, you know the truth, but then why do you utter so much nonsense? Job here colors what the friends have been saying as vanity, a big fat nothing. Their words are an empty vapor. It's nonsense babbling that poof disappears like smoke in the wind. And yet what have the friends said that is so much gibberish and malarkey? Well, Job quotes them for us. Indeed, beginning in verse 13 and extending all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 23, Job cites and summarizes what the friends have been saying. In fact, verse 13 is a near verbatim quote from Zophar in chapter 20, verse 29. Thus, this section is not Job's opinion or his position but it is the silly stance and vain argument of the friends. Thus, as you can tell from verse 13 and following, that this second half of the chapter is the classic retribution on the uh, wicked. Note what it goes to say. The evil villains have kids, but the sword will devour them. A plague will wipe out the whole household of the wicked, and his widows will not weep for him. The criminal may amass, or the, the wicked may amass wealth for a time, but the righteous and innocent will be the ones to enjoy it. He will go to bed rich and wake up with nothing. Terrors will sweep over the wicked like the flood, storms will blow him away, and that dreaded east wind will hurl itself at him without pity so that he's gone and no more. Now, this is way too familiar to us as we've listened to the friends say this over and over again. It's their dogmatic, quote, orthodoxy that the wicked are always punished in this life and done so with the direct and evasive providential judgments. But why does Job rehearse at such length, especially if it's such nonsense? Besides, even though Job argued against the thin retribution principle, he has admitted a time or two that the wicked are also judged sometimes. So why repeat the Frayn's vain argument for half the chapter? Well, he does it to contrast with his oath 
of integrity in the first half of the chapter. He swore of his impeccable righteousness, and now he quotes the friend's retribution principle in a way that aligns with what Job has experienced. Yes, the punishments listed here on the wicked match up to Job's losses. Note it says the wicked have many kids, but he has no survivors. This happened to Job. It says the widows do not mourn. Well, without pity, Job's wife told him to curse God and die. All the wealth and riches that, and rich clothes that Job had were whisked away like dust. His house fell like a moth. He went to bed wealthy and woke up penniless. As Job said in chapter 3, all that he feared the most has fallen upon him. And the wind, that terrifying Sirocco that races out of the east, this hot blast of air hit the home of his kids, and they were no more in a moment. Therefore, Job repeats the retribution stated by his friends that most naturally match his agony. Job quotes the friends to admit that it appears as if retribution has fallen upon him, but this semblance is only skin deep. Yes, all his kids died, but as he was as sealed in his oath, Job is righteous, and he's not wicked. This especially comes out in verse 17. It says, according to the friend's retribution, the righteous and innocent get to plunder the wealth of the wicked. Well, Job's riches were divided up, but not by the upright. No, it was raiders and brigands that stole his cattle and sheep. Violent gang gang members robbed and plundered the wealth of Job. His money wasn't paid out as restitution to innocent sufferers. Rather, it was ransacked by villains and criminals. Hence, Job uses this long quote from the friends to carve out again the clear category of the righteous sufferer. In God's ways, the curse doesn't just fall upon the rebellious, but it can also slam into the righteous. In the friends' silly retribution position, there's no place for the upright to suffer. In fact, Eliphaz said in his opening speech back in chapter 4, he said, what innocent person has ever suffered? But such dogmatism is nonsense. By definition, crimes have victims who are innocent. And more particularly, Job's righteousness is spotless. But he has tasted of all these curses. Thus, there is such a thing as the righteous suffering curses. And this is where Job stands. He's the epitome of being godly and yet tormented not for sin, but for nothing. For the friends, this cannot be. By retribution, if the righteous suffer, the friends think that this can only mean that God is unjust. These two cannot exist side by side for the friends, the righteous suffering and God's justice. Thus, Job must be wicked. But Job asserts that both are true. God is just, 
And Job is righteous who tasted of the curses as if he was wicked. Thus, Job does speak better than the friends. And it's this point here about the upright suffering that is one that is integral to the New Testament. When Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer, be put on trial, and executed, their knee-jerk reaction was the same as the friend's. There is no way the Messiah can be put under the curse. Now, the apostles didn't didn't doubt Jesus' godliness, but it was out of the question that he could go to the cross. And then when he did go to the cross, the crowds assumed that Jesus was a villain. He couldn't be the Messiah. The Son of God cannot stay upon the cross to perish under the Lord's damnation. The righteous one suffering and dying is out of the question. It's contradictory and illogical. It's a non-starter. And Paul, he went through the same thing. As an apostle, Paul was constantly being plagued by tribulation. He was shipwrecked at sea, mauled on the road by bandits, and he was regularly in trouble with the city authorities. There's no way a true apostle can suffer this much and, and be for God. Something must be wrong with Paul. This is, in fact, why so many people question Paul's apostleship. It's why some of his friends abandoned him. And it's why Paul told Timothy, do not be ashamed of my chains. People were embarrassed of Paul's suffering, thinking he must be punished by God. He's too unlucky to be God's. Indeed, the crowds of the New Testament did not want to admit the category of the righteous sufferer, either for Jesus or for Paul. In their minds, there's just no way that the just God would punish his holy Messiah. And on the strict level, there is tension here. Justice means that every person is paid according to their deeds, fairly and honestly. Thus, if you are holy and upright and you suffer, this isn't fair. It's out of line with the principles of justice. So then how could the holy Christ suffer wrath and God still be just? Doesn't the judgment of Jesus invalidate the Father's justice? No. And it doesn't because Jesus willingly submitted to the cross for your sins. Christ didn't suffer for his sins, as he had none, but he did for ours. He was the epitome, the very essence of the righteous one's suffering. And it was perfectly just and fair because he endured the tribulation as our substitute. In love, Jesus said, I'll take my people's sin upon my shoulders. He laid down his life. He bore wrath for you. Your punishment he tasted. The sharp blade of justice that was due to us, Jesus felt in his own flesh and in the deepest reaches of his soul. Jesus was laid in the grave under the scorching agony of retribution. And because Jesus suffered as our substitute, as our vicarious atonement, God is both just and the justifier of sinners like us through faith alone. 
as the Holy One was impaled upon the cross, Jesus saved us to the uttermost, forever and all of grace. Moreover, by his righteous suffering on that cursed tree, Jesus sets a pattern for us. He allows us the privilege to image him by also suffering for others. Indeed, Job, he didn't die for our redemption. But at the end of the day, why did Job suffer? Well, God's purposes are manifold. But one reason Job suffered was for you. Yeah, his kids died. He was infested with worms in the service of us. Job is serving you to give you an example of faithfulness and steadfastness amid tribulation. Similarly, Paul felt the bite of iron chains for the church. For it is enough for us to be like our master and our Lord, Jesus upon the cross. Therefore, it is to honor the Lord for us to suffer for the sake of righteousness, for the name of Jesus, and for the good of others. Dear saints, why do you experience the miseries of life? Again, in God's wisdom, our hardships can be used for various objectives and for numerous reasons all at the same time. Sometimes our pains are the Father's discipline of, of us in love. But at other times, you will be afflicted for nothing you have done, but in order to serve others. In the beautiful wisdom and grace of God, this no way, in tarnish, no way tarnishes the justice and glory of the Father. But it amplifies his transcendent wisdom, the Lord's, and his mercy to let us image our beloved Savior. So then may we not cross the line to imply fault in God when we suffer especially when we suffer for others or when we suffer for no discernible reason that we can figure out. Instead, with the eyes of the author of our salvation, may we count it as a blessing to be found in his image. Let us be grateful when the Lord uses our pain for the benefit of others. And let us rest content in the wisdom of God, who works all things for his glory and works all things for our eternal good, namely to enjoy him forever. Blessed be the wisdom of God, whose ways are higher than our ways and can use our pain and suffering to bring him glory and to bless others. For Christ died for us, He suffered for us, and what a blessing it is to image him. Amen. Let's pray.